Hello, and welcome back to The Garden Podcast. I'm Chris Young, editor of The Garden magazine, which, if you don't know, is the monthly magazine for RHS members. This podcast is all about the stories behind the stories. It's an opportunity to hear from the people involved in creating the words and images in our publication. Plus, it's a chance to delve deeper and explore the topics that are really exciting gardeners and garden lovers right now. Summer has truly arrived, and true to British tradition, so has the rain. So it's maybe bad news for sunbathers, but good news for people who are growing their own fruit and veg. There's no need for that extra watering cans or hose pipes yet in most of the country. Later on in this podcast, we'll be discussing the benefits of growing unusual crops from all around the world. Plus, we'll be talking to wildlife expert Jean Vernon about the surprisingly diverse range of bees that can be encouraged to call our gardens home. But first, where do you stand on Hypericum? Also known as St John's Wort, some of these brightly coloured flowers are valued by herbalists, but their merits in the garden are often subject to a debate, unless you really, really like yellow, that is. Some people feel that hypericums are best left in the car park, but in July's magazine, David Jewell, head of collections of the Sir Harold Hillier Gardens, argues that these shrubs are often underestimated and underplanted. He analyses the results of a three-year RHS plant trial to compare some of the most popular selections. In the Peterborough office, the benefits of this plant for gardens is a subject of contention amongst the magazine team. I am Melissa Mabbitt. I'm a writer for The Garden magazine. I'm Phil Clayton and I am deputy editor for The Garden. Uh, We are talking about Hypericum because we have a, a plate of Hypericum in the July issue of The Garden. People can be a bit sniffy about Hypericum. They have a reputation as being car park plants because they're tough and easy to grow. I am not a great fan, but I want you to change my mind. Why have we included them in the the garden this month? Well, it's on the back of a long overdue, I must say, uh, RHS trial of Hypericum, which was done at uh, the Sir Harold Hillier Garden. I went to see it twice and was bowled over, really, by the Mm. number of different entries. I have to say... They're lovely if you like yellow, uh, because they are almost all yellow mm. flowered. I've but always... there's surprising variety in, in, in the size of flower, the kind of the poise of the flower, and also obviously the size and the sort of shape of the shrub as well. I've always found the yellow of Hypericum to be slightly, quite a dark yellow, almost. Kind of, I find it a little bit muddy and murky, but are they all that, are they all the you same might, yellow? Well, you might say murky. I'd say <laughs> egg yolk coloured yes, is how yeah, I'd like to describe yeah. that. A slight orange tinge to them. Mm. They're not all quite the same hue, no. Some of them had uh, have different coloured flowers. There was a particularly nice one in the trial called uh, Hypericum bellum, which had beautiful flowers that were a softer yellow mm. um, and the flowers quite cup shape uh, mm. particularly when they were mature and they appeared on the stems of the plant were quite dark red so they were really set off beautifully by that the, the colour really of the foliage nice. beautiful thing really yeah. really first are they all that. really long flowered as well because that's one of the the things they've got going for them isn't it a lot of them are i mean i have to say it's very i i can't understand the sniffiness i <laughs> even something as common as hypericum hidcut i think is a shrub that's very hard to actually 
really find a problem with. Mm. It's a neat plant. It's easily grown. It tolerates a wide range of conditions. It's very seldom troubled by pests or disease, and it flowers its heart out mm. uh, from July to October, covered in bright yellow flowers. And I think if you mix it with the right colour, say if you've got it in a hot border with lots of reds and oranges, yeah. it's actually going to work really well in that and add a bit of needed yellow. Yellow flowers can actually be quite short-lived often, can't they? They, they, they can. Yeah. Uh, it's a first-rate plant, mm. uh, and it's seen a lot because it's so good. I mean, that's the reason it's common, because yeah. it's really worth growing. What I do really like about um, Hypericum are the berries, actually. I think they're fantastic. They're really, I don't know if they all have the same berries, but there's one that's that you find in a florist in mm. the autumn. They're really red berries. They're fantastic flower arranging. Do they all have that? No, they? They, don't, they, don't all, mm. they don't all have berries. Mm. Okay. Um, yeah, but that one has different coloured fruits of different colours. I think it? you can get black ones mm, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Black yeah. Fr- fruits, red fruits. Um, use them in a Christmas display this year and they looked amazing with some eucalyptus. There are some other great ones in the trial. Um, one of them named after Roy Lancaster, Hypericum Lancasteri, was a really good, very good one, semi-evergreen, mm. with attractive sea-green foliage Ooh. and saucer-shaped flowers. That Another actually sounds lovely. It was, really yeah. nice. Another one that stood out was uh, Hypericum henryi. There were a couple of clones of that. One one was a subspecies, uh, subspecies Hancockii, a good one. Another of the clones, uh, when I say clone, I mean particular plant. So a clone is a plant that's been propagated vegetatively from cuttings so genetically each plant is identical that's what i mean by clone there's another one henry eye subspecies henry eye again semi evergreen with really lovely saucer shaped flowers about an inch and a half across mm. that carried on flowering well into october mm. that's the thing about these plants they are dependable for really flowers into autumn which mm. is a great bonus if I was going to use one, I have a border which I have with not exactly hot flowers, but sort of sunset colours, so reds, oranges, yellows. And I think actually, thinking about it, I could probably find a place for a hypericum in there. I think it would look good, maybe with some uh, orange, you know, especially, when do they stop flowering? When do they start? Yeah. July normally? June, okay. Yeah, normally July. So they, it would take over, so I've got things like yellow wallflowers and it would probably pick up that nice yellow and carry on the yellow through the rest of the summer. So. It would, it yeah. would indeed. It mm. would indeed. And as I say, there's a huge range to choose from. It's just that most people only grow the same two or three. Mm. You can read David Jewell's piece, complete with our trademark photographic plate, in this month's The Garden magazine. If you're an RHS member, you'll know that the magazine is delivered to your door for free every month. But if you're not a member, why not join today? The benefits include priority booking and discounted entry to RHS events and shows, such as the Hampton Court Palace Flower Festival or the RHS Tutton Park Show, which are both coming up in July. There are still a few tickets available, so go online and book now if you haven't done so already. There are links to the show's information on our programme page at rhs.org.uk slash thegardenpodcast. As editor, I'm currently making the final amendments and signing off the last few pages of the July issue. And as ever, there's loads to read. There's just a couple of articles I want to talk about at the moment. There's one which is all about agapanthus. Now... For anyone who goes to any of our flower shows or any garden at this time of year and through the summer, agapanthus are a great range of plants. Purples, whites, dark purples, there's a really nice range of colours. And this month we've got an article all about the Award of Garden Merit. 
Agapanthus have just finished with a plant trial and there's been about 56 Award of Garden Merits awarded, which is a huge number. It's quite a small genus, actually. But to get that many AGMs or Award of Garden Merits out of it is a huge number. So there's going to be plenty of information in this article to help gardeners select the best Agapanthus for their garden. We also have Stephanie Donaldson, a well-known garden writer. She visits Loseley House in Surrey, a beautiful, formerly laid-out garden, but with some great planting, really high summer splendour, and actually with plenty of ideas that you can try in your garden at home. It's a really lovely garden review. Stephanie always writes really well, and it's an absolutely beautiful garden. There's also a really nice story about Jack and Laura Wilgos, who are nursery owners. They met at um, RHS Garden Wisley uh, on the horticultural staff, and they got together and they got married, and they now run a nursery up in Shropshire called Wild Goose Nursery. And they've been to a couple of the RHS shows displaying their violas a couple of years ago. And it's a really great story. Young couple with kids starting up a nursery in a beautiful walled garden. And this is part of the Roy Lancaster series where he goes to look at British um, independent plant nurseries. So it's great that we've got that link between them as RHS students getting together, creating a business, running an independent plant nursery, and then we go and visit them and, and see the plants that they grow. And there's just one other thing to bring to your attention, and that's a one-page article. And that's by Nicola Spence from DEFRA. And this really is to advise us, if we're going away on holiday, don't bring plants back or seeds or cuttings back from abroad. I'm sure many people are aware of xylella, the um, disease and bacteria that's affecting lots of different plants. And the message is really, if you're going abroad, please don't bring anything back. It really could have a detrimental effect on our plants and our wildlife in the UK. So the message is, Enjoy it when you're abroad, but please don't bring plants back to the UK to help us protect our plants. Have you ever noticed how difficult it is to avoid bee puns once these stripy pollinators are introduced into a conversation? Well, we have, and it's an issue that Jean Vernon has to be very careful about, as her specialist wildlife feature this month is a spotter's guide to summer bees. Astonishingly, in Britain, there are about 270 types of bees, many of which can be found in gardens up and down the country. We spoke to her to discover more about these fascinating creatures and find out how we can make our gardens more bee-friendly. You might be surprised to know that out of the 276 species of bees that we have, only one is a honeybee. Only one bee actually makes honey. Of the rest, um, about 25 of them are what we would regard as bumblebees, and the remaining 250 or so are what are called solitary bees. The main difference between bumblebees and solitary bees is that a solitary bee, I kind of talk about them as independent bees because the mother bee basically raises or lays her eggs, provisions for them and leaves them to mature and hatch. Whereas a bumblebee, there's a colony, there's a social colony where they all work together with one aim of raising the larvae into adults and, and making queens and males for the next generation. So the solitary bees are very independent. They can live in aggregation, which can make them look as if they're a social colony. But the bumblebees and indeed the honeybees, they have nests. And the main difference between the honeybee and the bumblebee is that the bumblebee life cycle generally goes over one year. You don't have bumblebee nests that survive into the following year, whereas a honeybee, the colony keeps going and basically divides when, in effect, when it has a baby. 
So a swarm, which is when the colony divides, is in effect the colony reproducing. So a swarm is not a bad thing, it's actually a really positive thing. In your garden, there are some amazing bees, and, and some of these it's quite easy to spot by actually staking out different types of garden plants. For example, if you have lamb's ear, the plant lamb's ear in your garden, which is Stachys byzantina, there is a bee called the wool carder bee, and the female shaves the fluff off the leaves and off the stems, and she uses that to line her nests. And you're quite likely to find that bee on the flowers and the leaves of that plant in the summer. And equally, the male of the species is very territorial, so you might see him um, scaring off other bees from the plant, which is quite fascinating to watch. Another bee that you may see in your garden, or equally, you'll probably see evidence of the bee first, and that's the leaf cutter bee. Shrubs such as roses are quite commonly affected by the bee. It's really important to understand it is not a pest, so please don't reach for pesticides if you see leaf cutter bee holes in your rose bushes. Your roses will survive. You can sleep easily at night knowing that your rose leaves have been used to seal up little nest holes where the female leaf cutter bee will have laid her eggs and then she seals the ends of each cell with a piece of leaf or sometimes a piece of petal and you may be lucky enough to see them nesting if you have a bee house or if you have these bees nesting in cavities around your garden and they are absolutely fascinating to watch. Well, I think one of the really important things that people don't consider when they want to garden for bees is that habitat is as important as growing lots of different sorts of flowers. And by that, I mean places to nest. Um, many of the solitary bees will actually nest in the ground. Some of them will nest in, in a lawn or a bank. And even the bumblebees, the bumblebee queens, when they overwinter, they will choose banks and they will hunker down in the ground until it's time for them to emerge. And so actually leaving bare bits of soil is as important as growing lots of different flowers. Same as cutting the dead flowers down at the end of the season, there are several bees that nest in hollow stems. There are bees that nest in cob walls. There's a lovely example of that, RHS Wisley. There's a lovely cob wall around the, the education children's garden. And it's been completely taken over by a colony of uh, hairy-footed flower bees. And if you go down in season, starting around late Feb, early March, you can see the bees emerging from the holes in the cob wall, which is fascinating to watch and um, just shows that a cob wall is a perfect habitat for certain species of bees. It's been quite a difficult um, year for the bees in general. If you remember, we had a really hot spell in February, which did bring some of the queen bumblebees out of their winter torpor and indeed started the honeybee colonies into action too early. And then we had the cold snap and then we had snow. And now we've had this deluge of rain. It has set many bees back. When it comes to bumblebees nesting underground or solitary bees nesting underground, some of them will have been flooded out. They do forage in wet weather, but when it's torrential rain, imagine the size of a raindrop on your body. When you're the size of a bee, it's not the best conditions to be flying in. And you may well find bedraggled bees in the garden that have braved it out because they need some fuel, but haven't made it back to their nest. Um, there is a really good way of reviving bees if you find them in that situation. You could make a mix of 
50-50 water to sugar solution and feed it to the bee and it will give them a quick energy boost. If you can dry them off too, that would help. And um, they should fly off back to their nest. I wouldn't advocate leaving sugar water out for bees because you will attract all sorts of insects and it will cause problems. But for an emergency rescue, if you could do one thing to help the bees, it would be to stop using all pesticides, not just insecticides, but fungicides and weed killers too. And the reason for that is that bees often make a fermented food for their offspring and fungicides in the garden can affect that too. Um, So if you can find a way to use biological controls and other methods to deal with garden pests and problems, or indeed just try and live with them, because it's all part of the natural balance. And when you've got good natural balance in the garden, it makes it a nicer place to be. If you're interested in growing plants to help bees, why not check out the Plants for Pollinators list on the RHS website? Backed by our independent scientific research, they're an invaluable resource for wildlife gardeners. Links, as ever, on our podcast page. And finally, exotic vegetable growing takes Essex by storm. At RHS Garden Hyde Hall, it has an astonishing and inspiring global growth vegetable garden. Centred around a beautiful octagonal glasshouse at the top of Hyde Hall's hill, this garden contains productive crops from around the world. It's a place where yard-long beans rub shoulders with Malabar spinach, amaranths and West Indian gherkins, and it's a great place to get inspiration for expanding the range of crops on your allotment. I spoke to my colleague, Gareth Richards, who's our digital features editor and who is in charge of these podcasts, to find out more after his recent visit to the garden. Gareth, I know that you're a great and passionate fruit and veg grower, and you've obviously visited Hyde Hall's Global Growth Vegetable Garden. What struck you about it? It was just seeing this incredible range of crops all growing cheek by jowl. If you think that a vegetable garden is just sort of spuds and raspberries together, you're quite mistaken. Just so many different unusual things. I I wouldn't have thought some of them even were were crops to grow. Well, I mean, we're going to come on to that in a bit. But just to describe the layout and explain the design of the new garden. So it's quite, it's it's a bit of a shock as you sort of go down the herbaceous borders at Hyde Hall. It's very kind of traditional, quite genteel. Lovely lawns and roses. exactly. Lovely clipped yew topiary and whatnot. And then there's a gap in the hedge and you just step through into an absolutely into another world. And you're confronted with this beautiful octagonal glass house and the veg beds and the, the garden kind of radiates out from around it. But I think you're right, Gareth, because the really interesting thing is that Hyde Hall, you know, it does have some traditional elements. There's this hilltop where the garden is centred around, and then you have this amazing design, but also just the scope and the variety of what's grown in the Global Growth Garden is a real eye-popping moment, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. There's lots of things that you wouldn't have thought were veg crops or, or were edibles, things that we're quite familiar with. In so, the, like, well, give us an example. Um, so, camassias. Yep. You know, I, I know camassias as being those beautiful kind of blue uh, or white. early summer bulbs. Yeah. yeah, and you see masses of them down at other RHS gardens. But here, they're grown in the veg garden. And you think, what? But actually, they're a staple crop for Native American people of the Pacific Northwest. So they were quite, quite an important crop. So which bit are they eating? 
they're eating the root. Okay. Yeah. And what about other plants? Because you, you've also mentioned in the article about Mahonia, have yeah. you? Yeah, Mahonia has a common name, Oregon grape. And that, if you've got a slightly shady spot in your garden and you're wondering what, what will grow there, lovely, hardy, evergreen shrub, mm. great flowers for the bees yeah. in uh, late winter, early spring. And they have these most amazing berries that are very good in jams. Ah. Yeah, jams. And you can eat them fresh. They're a bit sour, but... Uh, but with but a bit yes, of sugar, they come through. A bit of sugar, yeah, absolutely. One of the things that's ever that is really good about these sort of articles is the photographic plate. And I think anybody looking at the photos uh, that you've captured in the article will just be amazed about the array of fruit and veg that we can grow in the UK and that we can eat. So what were some of the interesting surprises that you uncovered? Well, there was a, there was a few. So... There were different varieties of things that we know already. So, for example, the sweet corn, double red, that is the most beautiful, beautiful corn. The colours of the corns themselves, it's like um, it's almost like pomegranate mm. pieces. It looks all sort of inky or juicy yeah. on the plate, on the yeah, page. Absolutely. And I've grown red sweet corn before and it wasn't that tasty. I ended up feeding it to my chickens. But <laughs> apparently this one is a good one to grow for eating fresh. Even just when they're growing, you can tell that they're going to be red inside because the cobs have this beautiful wine colour in the tassels too. And then things like the um, Chile Numex Twilight, that is a whole rainbow of different colours. So you've got purples, you've got whites, you've got greens, you've got reds, you've got oranges, all in one plant. And it's a real, real good doer as well. I have grown that before and I think that that's definitely worth growing. As I said in the, in the introduction, you are a great fruit and veg grower and um, those of us who work with you uh, sometimes reap the rewards that you sow uh, when you bring your extra stock and crops uh, into share. You garden here in Peterborough, uh, where the office is of the Garden Magazine. So what are the things that you've learned from doing the article that you're going to be trying in your allotment? Well, there's a few. So I was really inspired to grow watermelons this year because Matt Oliver, the horticulturist down at Hyde Hall, he said they will knock the socks off anything you can buy in the shops. And there's some new varieties um, which are being bred for home gardeners and good for the British climate. So there's one called Mini Love, mm. which is sort of about the size of a cantaloupe melon, so you're not going to be completely overwhelmed. So, yeah, I'm trying those instead and, of cucumbers. And they're, they're OK outside? No, they need to be in a greenhouse, Protected. really, for, for the best crops. And I'm also trying Chilean guavas. Now, these I've eaten before, and they are delicious. And they had um, just a few little plants at Hyde Hall, and they had such a good crop of them that they actually made jelly in the restaurant so I was really surprised by that just how productive these things are and knowing how gorgeous they are to eat I thought I'm going to plant a little row because in my soil blueberries are a bit hard to grow yeah. whereas Chilean guavas similar kind of size they look like a blueberry but pink and they fruit in the autumn time as well oh, so it's nice to have fruit at a different time, a different of, year. time of year yeah. easier to grow than blueberries it's a real kind of a surefire winner as long as you're not in a really really cold area. I think one of the things that also strikes me talking to you, but also uh, reading the article and a lot of the uh, fruit and veg articles we cover in the magazine is that obvious link between growing and cooking. I know this is a really big thing, isn't it, at Hyde Hall? There's James Curtis, the head chef at Hyde Hall, who um, uses and works with the curatorial team mm. very closely, doesn't he, to actually get all this produce and then serve it to our customers? Yes, so they have four different seasonal menus. They make uh, beautiful recipe cards as well from the garden. So if you go onto the RHS website and look at Hyde Hall and navigate through, you can find some lovely recipe cards from them. The harvests from the veg garden all go up to the restaurant. So if you're lucky, every time you visit right you will be able to get a little taste of the unexpected. So I obviously don't want to be talking about Christmas or the autumn or winter as we are talking in June, but um, what are you going to be doing when you're thinking about your seed catalogues and what you're going to be ordering for next year? What's inspired you from this that you're going to really remember to buy? 
I'm definitely going to try soybeans next year. I absolutely love them when you have them in East Asian cuisine, the edamame beans, and they're quite easy to grow. And so I'm, what I'm going to do, I think every year is when I order my seeds, I'm just going to add one extra thing that I've not grown before and take inspiration from this global larder that we have to raid for our food. As before, you can read the article and find details about events at RHS Garden Hyde Hall in July's edition of The Garden magazine. Well, that's all we've got time for in today's podcast. We'll be back with more audio from The Garden next month. Until then, from me, Chris Young, and the magazine team, goodbye 